All right, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. And we are seeing the conflict of ministry on the back end of Jesus' ministry as he's headed toward Jerusalem to accomplish the redemption of humanity through his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. And he's saying very powerful and very strong things about what it means to follow him. Contextually, the context is very strong for the Jewish people as he came to them as the king of the Jews and their accountability of three years of his ministry being with them. So not only is it amazing that God came into the world and walked on the earth and in time, space, and matter for 30 years uh, plus, but he came to his own people to whom he was promised. And what's amazing is, as a whole, collectively, nationally, they did not receive him. And that's the background to our historical context tonight. And then we'll get some application for us and our lives and our generation. Luke chapter 13, verse 1. There were present at that season... Some who told him about the Galileans, whose blood, Pilate, that is Pontius Pilate, the governor, had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them, Do you think that they were worse sinners than all the other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will also likewise perish. You will perish. So, contextually, again, we've got two events that happen historically in the news, if you will, around the time of Jesus that people were aware of. Just like we might have news that's going on in our time that we would be aware of. Sounds like local news, right? Like uh, you had an accident where 18 men were killed in Jerusalem. That's local news. That's front page of the Jerusalem Post 2,000 years ago. You've got something that happened involving Galilean men who were involved in some sort of a spiritual sacrifice where it turned into what was probably perceived by the Romans as terrorist activity. And Pilate, having the authority of Rome, had some men slaughtered and killed uh, in some sort of military operation that was against something that appeared religious in its nature because there were sacrifices, but maybe it was of terrorist nature from a Roman standpoint of view. So you have two events that were in the news that the common people of that time were very much aware of. And we like news, don't we? We like to talk about the news. People comment on the news. We used to just get the orange you know, Orange County Register or the LA Times or the San Diego Union, we'd read the news and we'd go on with our day. That's kind of, baby boomers are like that, right? We used to get the paper delivered. I used to deliver the newspaper, the Jefferson Journal in Charlottesville, Virginia. It was my first job when I was in fifth grade, okay? Once a week on Thursday morning, I deliver a paper and it's the news. A lot of people, they're driven by the news. The news is is particularly negative because negativity sells. Like 95% of all news is negative and designed to get you upset and that you'll be addicted to be upset to bad news and come back to the news. You see, if there's any more news on the bad news, that you can get more upset. It's designed to invoke an emotion, and it's a negative one, and it's purposely designed that way, whether it's uh, whoever's writing the news. We like drama. Or as they said, it used to say in Chile, it's a, oh, Chilenos, you know, they, they love telenovela. Uh, you know, it's like... A, 
soap opera. And it's funny thing about news, when you think about it, political news, because the first news is political, right? It's pilot, it's pilot, it's government. You know, who wants to, do you have an opinion about what happened that pilot killed these Galileans, right? It's big government killing Galileans who appear to be religious. But are they religious zealots who advocate violence against Rome and want Jesus to advocate violence against Rome? Is it right to render to, to pay taxes to Caesar, right? Everyone has an opinion on politics, especially when big government, which Rome was for Israel, is enforcing things on people and even taking lives. Oh, yeah. Law enforcement taking lives, an occupying force taking lives who, from a Jewish perspective, they're serving God. They're offering up spiritual sacrifices, right? And there's blood mingled. Something happened. We don't need to know. We just, but it's in the Bible. It was their news. And believe me, you, everyone had an opinion about it at the uh, Tiberius Cafe in the morning, right? Everyone's got an opinion about everything. And everyone had an opinion, like, did you read the news? These men from Galilee and families were affected. But it was political. It had some violence. It had some big government. And it had something religious and spiritual about it, too. And we know with Rome... Caesar reigns supreme. Caesar is God in Rome. Politics is God. He who rules with the mighty fist is God. That's the history of humanity. The other news, on a lighter note, these poor souls, they're at work, construction. Yeah, I remember growing up in Carlsbad, that power plant with that ugly smokestack you see when you go down to Legoland and past that. I remember when they were building that smokestack in the 70s. And if you're old enough to remember, I remember there was a day that five men died in a construction accident building that smokestack. I was a teenager. I was either at Valley Junior High in eighth grade or early on at Carlsbad High. And I remember thinking, like, what a tragedy. In my world of Carlsbad, five men were on, on a crane building that smokestack, and something happened, and they all fell to their death. And it really, you know, in Carlsbad, at Carlsbad, at that time, Carlsbad was a city of 10,000 in 72 when we moved there. So 75, 76, it's about like 40,000, 30,000. And that was big news, that power plant. You know, we're, we're, they're redoing the power plant down here right now, yeah? You see all the hard hats going to work Monday through Friday right now? Down there, you know, like Newland and PCH? Yeah, a, and that's what was going on. And I remember like even in high school, like, gosh, did you guys hear what happened? Dude, those guys fell from a crane. And we're like that. It's news. And here's the funny thing about human beings and how we perceive news. Politics, religion, and tragedy, right? Because tragedy is always front page news. Sometimes it all goes together. I find this very interesting. Tragedy. Everyone has an opinion about tragedy. Oh, those poor souls on that plane. Recently I saw a photo of the PSA airline that went down in San Diego in the 70s. It was hit by the small plane, and it's one of the few plane wrecks where I actually have a picture of it going down on fire. I lived in Carlsbad at the time. Everyone has an opinion, like, oh, those poor souls, like, what are the chances? And when you fly, you think that, right? Some, some people really think that. The fear of flying is like, boy, it's like, and you can tell someone you're more likely to get hit and killed by a car on a crosswalk in Huntington Beach than to die in a plane crash. But that's not so terrorizing. But a tower falling on you, that's terrorizing. 200,000 people are going to die of old age or, or some way today on this planet. But we're going to just be drawn to someone that dies by a shark attack. 
And we're going to think, what did that poor person do that they end up on a plane that went down in flames, or they fell off a crane in Carlsbad, or they were attacked by a shark? Like, we all have an opinion. And then as we have our opinion, we move that opinion toward, well, I wonder if they deserved it. Because we do think that way. Like, why would that happen to those people? And it brings us to the question that skeptics often ask, why do bad things happen to good people if God is good? If bad things happen, they should only happen to bad people. And yet, what did Jesus say? It rains on the just and the unjust. So good things happen or bad things happen, depending on how you view the rain, on the just and the unjust. And we all have an opinion. We all have an opinion about politics, religion, violence of politics and religion, and we all have an opinion about tragedy and how it affects people, and we do. And even in Jesus' day, we see that. This is a Jerusalem post for Jesus' day, and they're like, hey, did you hear the news? What happened? What's your opinion politically about the, the heavy-handed response by Pilate and his, his goons against the people from Galilee and their stuff? And he says, I'm going to tell you about news and what matters with news. It's not the news that affects other; It's news that affects you. And it's the good news that affects you. Forget about the news of the Galileans. What's done is done with the Galileans. That's not your business. That's God's business and Pilate's business. Your business is the business of repentance and faith. That's good news. So you're telling me bad news or politically sensitive news. I want to talk to you about the news that matters to you, repentance and faith. He's given them good news. Now, most people see repentance as bad news. I got to change. But if you're going to hell because of sin, death, the wages of sin, death, and being in bondage to the devil, that's all bad news. So, of course, the human experience, the front page news is usually bad news because it's sin, death, and the devil. And he's like, but let's talk about real news. Let's talk about good news. The good news is, unless you repent, you perish. That's good news. Because the one who's telling them that news is the one they can put their faith in with repentance and faith to, to pass from bad news to good news. So forget about the Galileans' bad news or Pilate and his role in that bad news. Forget about the tragedy of bad news that's out of your wheelhouse and not under your jurisdiction. Let's talk about the news that affects you. Repentance and faith. That's the news you need to be aware of. Because you see, really for Israel and the nation during his time, this is the last call. This is the last call in this generation. We've talked about this going through Luke. This generation is accountable like no other generation until the distinction of the last generation before Christ's return. So he says, hey, let's get past the front page tragedies and let's get past these things of, of religion and politics and let's get to the real news. Unless you repent, you perish. And that's actually good news because we are already perishing and that's why we need to repent. Now, repentance is critical. Greg Laurie is going to need to make very clear tonight to the thousands of people coming forward he has to articulate with clarity and simplicity that in receiving eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ, they are also repenting from that, which is keeping them from eternal life. Their sin, their pride, their unbelief. So we know that people that preach good news without 
the really good news of repentance from the bad news. That's not Greg Laurie. Greg Laurie's a true evangelist. He's preaching the need for repentance and faith. Without repentance, no one can see the Lord. And Jesus came to set the captives free. So until we recognize that we're captives, how can we be set free? Or as my son-in-law Nate said to me earlier today, well, when you recognize the problem, that's the beginning of the resolution of the problem. Until we recognize the problem, it cannot be resolved. If we don't see being a drunk as sin, we got a problem. And until we recognize it's sin, it's a problem. Until we see this being sin or that being sin or this anger being sin, this bitterness or unforgiveness being sin, until we let the... Because Jesus said the Holy Spirit will convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. So the Holy Spirit's work tonight at Anaheim Stadium with the Harvest Crusade and last night and tomorrow night as Greg's preaching that supernatural work for unbelievers through the radio and internet and all these things is to convict people in sin that they're sinners and there's a savior who died on the cross for their place in their place that they can have eternal life it's last call for israel contextually here he's like hey you got to get your mind off the jerusalem post and you got to get your mind off the you know tiberius cafe and your opinions and these sorts of things of course you understand i'm saying that facetiously but truthfully because there's nothing new under the sun in any generation and it's not about the Galileans that Pilate slaughtered in their sacrifice. It's not about the tower that fell on these people that appeared to be innocent and bad things happened to good people. It's about you. That's what he's saying to that generation, repenting. He presented himself. John the Baptist, the greatest of all prophet, prepared them for him. He said he's the one who's to come. Jesus lived the perfect sinless life. He taught perfect truth. He raised the dead, opened the eyes of the blind, set the captives free, cast out demons, cleansed the leper. He did all those things in fulfillment of the Old Testament. It was all there. You could not bring one false accusation against him. He confirmed everything that was said he would do when he came. And he said, listen, if you think it's bad to have a tower fall on you or to have your blood mingle with the sacrifice, what's really bad is you perishing unless you repent. What was John the Baptist's message to Israel? It was Repent. What was his baptism? It was a baptism of repentance. And even the New Testament in the church age, when we're baptized through faith in Jesus Christ, it represents death to the old woman, death to the old man, and being raised from the grave in the second Adam, alive in Christ. Repentance is so critical. And it's, it's interesting to me because in all the business world, they talk about the growth mindset and reflection and candor and all these buzzwords like, you know, debriefings. I was uh, the USOC person with us, uh, nutritionist specialist with us in Waco the last few days is a, is a former uh, special forces. So he just brought sp the special forces, whether they're Army or Green Beret or Navy SEALs or pararescue Air Force, they, as soon as they come back from mission, they evaluate what went right, what went wrong. That's Bill Belichick and the Patriots looking at game film on Monday from the game on Sunday. It's the evaluation of what's going right, what's going wrong, and, and correcting what's going wrong. Business groups, they come back from their um, you know, seminars or their sales meetings or trade shows, and they evaluate and they look at what went right or went wrong. That's from a business perspective. And I've said this before, businesses want to grow and learn from the mistakes. How can we better serve you? I mean, uh, at, at, at LAX, literally had this little sign, how was your uh, experience going through security? Rate us, poor, great, average, whatever. 
That's what businesses do to get better, to make more money, and not go out of business like Toys R Us, right? Or Woolworths. But that's all short-term. That's temporal. You see, as individuals before the Lord, we want to examine ourselves. We want to be like David, search me and try me and know me. It's interesting. It says that David, looking back on David's life in the book of uh, Kings, comparing other kings to David, that he always did what pleased the Lord except for the matter concerning Uriah. We often look at Uriah as this huge blemish on his life when he slept with his Uriah's wife Bathsheba, got her pregnant, and then had Uriah killed. And of course, we would. I mean, it's adultery and murder. But you know, God says, apart from that, he had a heart for me and always did those things that pleased me. We can learn a lot about repentance from the great King David who had the heart for God. And he said he was born in sin, and the purpose of sacrifices is not for religion, but for humility and brokenness before the Lord to go forward from sin. And the purpose of being wonderfully made in his mother's womb was so as we're walking outside in the world past the womb until the tomb that we could search me and try me and know me and see if there be any evil day in me because you formed the days for me and for me to be fruitful in those days, I need you to search me and try me and know me that I can grow and go forward. We need a growth mindset, but that's just a soft landing way that the world uses without addressing sin and calling sin for what it is. But in the church, we call sin for what it is. Sin is sin and sin kills. The wages of sin is death. And when sin is conceived, it will bring forth death. And sin always brings death. And so for us, a believer, a disciple of Christ, male or female, repentance is crucial because that is the way to life. It's the acknowledgement that we need to grow in this area. We need to let go of this, and we need to move forward. So, yeah, the nation of Israel, contextually, he's like, hey, you're going to be, forget about the tower that fell on those guys, the front page news about Pilate, politics, religion, and the opinion of these terrorists, or they freedom fighters, forget it. I tell you, unless you repent, you will perish. Get past the newspaper and the internet, and look at your soul, and think about eternity for the things that really matter. And I like that. That's a good word. So this is a good word for the church today, August 18th, 2018, that we would say, you know what, Lord, try me, search me. We have communion tonight. Try me, search me, examine me, see if there's any evil way in me. Because we want to be a woman after God's own heart. We want to be a man after God's own heart. We want to grow in the Lord. And if you don't, then you're here for the wrong reasons. Straight up. We want to be more the man God wants us to be for all eternity. And we want to be more that man tomorrow than we are today with the Lord. We want to be more that woman tomorrow than we are today. And as painful as things can be that God allows in your life to reveal weaknesses in your character, those things are allowed by the Lord for a purpose. Saul was allowed in David's life for a purpose. Uh, the Edomites attacking Israel in the time of David when he was a king are allowed for a purpose. The Syrians coming against him are allowed for a purpose. Absalom raising rebellion against David is allowed for a purpose. Shimei cursing David is allowed for a purpose to reveal things that God wants to purge out of us. So they had their chance to repent, and they came and went. We're alive. We have our chance to repent, and we can grow and learn. Amen? We read on. You never know when it's the last call. Verse 6, he also spoke this parable. A certain man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. Then he said to the keeper of his vineyard, look, three years I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and find none. Cut it down. Why does it use up the ground? 
But he answered and said to him, Sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and fertilize it. And if it bears fruit, well. But if not, after that, you can cut it down. So this parable of the fig tree and the vineyard. Now, God referred to Israel as his vineyard. Jesus, in prophetic terms, uh, compares Israel, the nation of Israel to the fig tree in Matthew 24. And the, again, the terminology contextually is very strong toward Israel uh, right here in this particular generation. So what Jesus is saying, he's given this parable to show the nation of Israel, you're like the fig tree. And for three years, you've had all these miracles and all these things to bring you to faith from John the Baptist to all that I've done. And you're religious. You have a tree you look like a tree, but you have no fruit. And of course, we know when he cursed the fig tree in another story, it's symbolic of Israel, again, not bearing fruit as a nation. And here's the thing. Nations go the way of nations. And a nation can be set toward the Lord or it can be opposed to the Lord, just like a region or cities and local governments. And we say this time and time again, Still, though, whatever nation you live in, under whatever laws favorable or disfavorable toward the gospel of Jesus Christ, we still have self-determination in our life to choose to live for Christ. We still choose because nothing can separate us from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. Nothing can ever separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So we have that self-determination, and there's a responsibility and accountability. So even though the nation collectively was rejecting the Lord, and his miracles and attributed him to Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies, Satan, and things like that. And the religious leaders were powerfully and profoundly against him. Everyone's still accountable. And the, there needed to be repentance, and there needed to be fruit of repentance. The Bible talks about bearing the fruit of repentance. John the Baptist, when he preached to the nation as they came to his baptism, he said, bear fruit worthy of repentance. So you who steal... Steal no more. You who demand a wage, demand the wage and don't tack on beyond what's fair for that wage, the Romans. When he said bear fruit worthy repentance, he, he gave them examples of it. So you see how this is kind of like staggered or, or tiered or sequential. Unless you repent, you're bad news. And you're like the tree. You might be religious. Oh, look, a fig tree. Where's the fruit? Where's the fruit? Jesus used agricultural terminology quite a bit, and Paul the Apostle used it as well. Where is the fruit? A fruit tree that produces no fruit in an agricultural dependent society where you can't just go to a grocery store is a worthless tree. It's space is worthless. It, it just doesn't have... If you have limited space and you've got a fruit tree that doesn't produce fruit and you need fruit and you want fruit, you get rid of that fruit. And so Jesus is using that analogy here. And one more time, fertilizer, kind of stir things up, give it one last shot, a go. We have a lemon tree like that. It's like a dwarf lemon tree. My wife loves lemons. Jennifer loves lemons. It's her favorite fruit. And uh, man, our old Costa Mesa house, we had the most beautiful lemon tree. That thing produced just, just lemons beyond measure. 
when she worked at Calvary schools, there were certain teachers that would bring lemons in the front office, and Jennifer always loved to bring those lemons home. Hannah, a few years ago, bought Jennifer a dwarf lemon tree. Um, and we have a part of our yard, we just call it the dead zone. You know, it's like when your phone doesn't work on the toll road here by Laguna Niguel, it just, boom, it just drops. When we did our backyard, we put new soil in there. I mean, a bird of paradise stays the same, right? I mean, uh, the plumeria does all right. It doesn't grow much, but it it's, it's kind of like, like it kills plants. It gets a lot of heat. It's like the plant's like, no, not here, you know, and, and, uh, and we've transplanted them. And that lemon tree's been there for a couple of years, and it was looking really bad, small shrub, you know. And Jennifer's like, Hannah gave that to me. He's like, oh, you can't kill the lemon tree Hannah gave Jennifer, that's for sure. So about six months ago, I'm like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to dig it up because we got a sweet spot by the porch, shaded area right here. Everything flourishes over there. So green thumb Joe gets the shovel. I'm not really patient like the roots. Oh, come here, baby. I talk to him like, hey, look, it's a good shot for you. I'm going to damage a few roots, but I'll make a deal with you. I'm going to take you out of this dead zone and put you to a good spot. And you and me, I'll be good. I'll water you over there. It's all good. But you got to do your part. You got to make it from here to there. I'll put you in this, this, this bigger planter. You make it work good. You don't. It's the end of the road. The green trash bin. Right? Okay. They come on Mondays. Yeah, you know, it's like, there they go. Everything ever died in our yard. They all, you know, that lemon tree, put it there. Guess what it's got? First time in years. It got a little lemon. It's got a little lemon. I'm like, look at you. I put it over there like three weeks. I'm like, Jennifer, look at your lemon tree. They had a lemon tree. It's just like, ooh, green. Us, new leaves, little buds. And now, a little teeny lemon. See? Stirred it up. New beginning. Fresh planter. Bloom and grow. Bloom on your planted, right? That's, that's what the fruit's like. Sometimes God has to transplant us. Sometimes he's got to rip us up, put us in some better soil, change the environment. That, that's what he says. It's like he uses agricultural understanding. Just like this is the same that I do with this lemon tree. It's going to die here. It's not going to make it here. And stir it up and give it a chance. And now it's producing fruit. That's what God does with human beings in our hearts and our souls. He stirs us up. He, he can agitate us. He does whatever he needs to do. But he takes action to produce fruit. Or another analogy is he heats things up to get out the dross. There's different analogies. This one's agricultural. Our lives are meant to produce fruit for the Lord. And the, the, the most obvious fruit is faith and obedience. Just in a general sense. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. So he's going to do things in our life and allow uh, hardships or call us to take steps of faith, testings, trials, tribulations, things that are beyond us. He's going to stir up the fertilizer. He's going to allow fertilizer in your life to stir you up to produce fruit. Good fruit. Fruit of faith. Fruit of obedience. That's what he's going to do. And in the context of the nation of Israel, he said, we're going to stir it up. We're going to give you a fresh start. We're going to give you a chance. But 
This is the last chance. Look what he said. Dig around it, fertilize it. It bears fruit well. If not, cut it down. Now listen, going back there, I have an opinion. And the Lord's got the final say, but there's times you feel like God's trying to, like you're observing that God wants to do something in someone's life and he's really reaching out. Like you need to get it now. You need to get this now. Maybe you know what I'm talking about. Like, man, you got to get this now. And if they get it, all of a sudden there's fruit and these are going good. And you're like, man, but some people, they don't get it. And then it's over. They're gone. They step into eternity. And that was it. And you wonder like, wow, did like the Lord give them one last chance and they didn't respond and it's over? I don't know, but you're like, let's just make sure we respond and be fruitful. Embrace the fertilization that God allows in your life to produce more fruit. If he wants to tear things up and rip things up and, and, and make things out of your comfort zone to bear more fruit, that's a good thing. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens, and he wants good fruit. More humility, more faith, more fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the patience, the faithfulness, the gentleness, the meekness, the self-control. There's a reason the Holy Spirit describes fruit. Not what's the fruit look like. I'm looking at a fruit bowl the other day at Waco. That's strawberries, pineapples, banana. No. Love, joy, peace, patience. But it all begins with faith. Because without faith, it's impossible to please God. They were prideful. They were religious. They need to be repentant, have faith, and be teachable. That's what we want to be. Don't despise the Lord stirring you up and fertilizing you to produce fruit because that's a good thing for what he wants to do in your life. Dig around it, fertilize it. Our lives are meant to bear fruit and good fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, meekness, faithfulness, self-control, faith, humility, obedience, the character of Christ and obedience to Christ. Now, verse 10. So again, it's last call. Last call. You need to repent or you're gonna, your bad news is as bad news as the tower falling down. Last call. We're going to dig you up and fertilize you, bear fruit. Good. If not, boom, you're cut down. Last call. Now he's teaching in one of the synagogues, verse 10, on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a spirit of infirmity 18 years and was bent over and could in no way raise herself up. But when Jesus saw her, he called her her to him and he said to her, woman, you are loosed from your infirmity. And he laid his hands on her and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue answered with indignation because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath. And he said to the crowd, there are six days on which men ought to work and therefore come and be healed on them, but not on the Sabbath day. And then the Lord answered him and said, hypocrite. That's a pretty strong opening, right? Like I always say, when Jesus says someone's a hypocrite, kumbaya's over, man. It's just, like, it's just, it's, it's a YouTube video. Hypocrite, does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So are not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound, think of it, for 18 years be loosened from this bond on the Sabbath? And when he said these things, all of his adversaries were put to shame. And all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. And then he said, 
What is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed which a man took and put in his garden, and it grew and became a large tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I liken the kingdom of God? It is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. This is all one connective thought process, what we're looking at here. So it's last call for the nation of Israel. Repent or perish. Be stirred up, fertilization, bear fruit, or be cut down. And now this situation with the woman. Deliverance is what Jesus was offering Israel. Deliverance. He said to the woman, you are loose from your infirmity. This was a physical infirmity that was difficult to live with, and it's ascribed to the devil. Which just reminds us we shouldn't underestimate the demonic element behind various afflictions that happen in people's lives. We don't like to give the devil credit, but he just wants people in bondage. That's why Jesus said, the son sets you free, you're free indeed. We're told that through Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he has full victory for the believer over the devil, over the, the grave, and over sin. He came to set the captives free. And the devil is the accuser of the brethren. He's a slanderer, he's a liar, he's a thief, and he comes to destroy. Jesus comes to give life. And that's why repentance is actually good news because that's the way to life from passing from death to life so he purposely healed on the sabbath we know that he could have healed on monday or sunday but he healed on sabbath the sabbath day their saturday he did it to expose their religion he did it to expose their tree with no fruit that's why he did it he did it with purpose because he could he could do this anytime but he did it to reveal the hypocrisy and the misrepresentation of the religious leaders in their role that they were entrusted by the Lord as Pharisees, Sadducees, or whatever, and religious leaders and rulers in, in the synagogues and these things. He, he's just revealing who they are, their misrepresentation. And he's showing that hypocrisy has always existed in the kingdom of God. And that's why he uses the analogy of the bird. We know the birds are negative in the parable of the soil. They represent the devil. And the devil goes to church. Brian Broderson, one of his most famous messages is when the devil goes to church. When the devil joins your church, he loves to go to church. Like a bird in the big tree of unnatural growth, he loves to join particularly big churches and just cause mayhem. The bird is a negative figure in the principle of parables as Jesus taught, representing the devil. And leaven in the Old Testament always represents sin. So, within the church, the devil goes to church and creates confusion. We know in the parable of the tares, they both grow up together, right? And the one says, oh, should I rip out the tares with the wheat? And he's like, no, no, no. The, the master says, let them both grow. Be separated at the end of the age. You know, lest you rip out the root of the wheat while you rip out the root of the tare. So, it's just the reality of misrepresentation for this generation, contextually, those religious leaders misrepresented the Lord, God himself, to Israel. They misrepresented the law, the prophets, and the Psalms. Their interpretation, their application was a misrepresentation. They were hypocrites. John the Baptist called them a brood of snakes. They were snakes. They were vipers. And there's always been misrepresentation in the kingdom of God. 
even as there is to this day. There are many people who claim to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. They misrepresent his purpose in coming. They misrepresent his character. They misrepresent his promises. They misrepresent everything. It's been like that, and there's nothing new under the sun. Whether they add to his word or take from his word, it's misrepresentation. The devil goes to church, and sin is in the church, and it's a reality. But Jesus called out that hypocrisy. So it's not about, it's not about the devil going to church. It's not about sin being in the church. What it's really about is that Jesus comes to church, and he sets the captives free. There's craziness at Anaheim Stadium tonight. I've been a part of evangelistic crusades. Anytime you get 500 people together to hear the gospel, let me tell you, it's flying monkeys like Wizard of Oz in surround sound. I mean, you do this stuff, it goes crazy. You fill a stadium. There's so many things going on right now at, at Angel Stadium right now. The Holy Spirit's working. The devil's doing things. His minions are doing things. There, there's people up front protesting Greg Glory. There's people in there serving the, the ministry of harvest. It's, it's craziness. So why would we be surprised that there's craziness in the kingdom of God? But what we need to stay focused on is Jesus came to set the captives free. And unless we repent, we perish like a building falling on us. And unless we let God stir us up and bear fruit, our time is done. We're meant to bear fruit, good fruit, character, faith, obedience. And our message is in the one of the Savior, in the midst of craziness, comes to set free the captives and loosen people who are in bondage. Ours is a ministry, not just of reconciliation as ambassadors of Christ in the church of body of Christ, but ours is a ministry of proclaiming the all-powerful one who has all authority to set anyone and everyone free from the captivity they're in. And we can never forget that. And that's why I've said, like even my own sister in her recovery from uh, you know, being an alcoholic on the streets with the grocery cart and out of her mind, and we look at people. We need to see people, however in bondage they are, that Christ can loosen them from it, no matter how crippled they are by the devil and sin and, and hard living. We need to see them not through the eyes of hypocrisy and oh, this or that and judgment, but to know that Christ sets the captives free and believe that he can. That's how we want to see people. People bent over and crushed by the weight of sin that Christ loosens them. And they, and they have to be more valuable than the ox and the donkey that brings us money. We had to see people, people being more important than the things that generate revenue for us uh, and certainly more important than anything else is the souls for the redemption of our souls is very costly. So when I look at this passage and he confronts the tree without fruit, the ruler of the synagogue, man, think about this, ruler of the synagogue. And then Jesus says, think about this. How many times does Jesus say that? Like, it's not like he does it every message. Like, hey, think about this. In the middle of making this point, he goes, hey, you think about this. Like, there's a strong emphasis that it's about people. It's not about organization. It's about people being delivered by the great deliverer. The captives being set free. And so, again, it's last call for Israel. You know, tonight at the Harvest Crusade, it's going to be last call for some people. 
if we had the, the computer technology of knowing the future, we could look at all those souls and we could color code which souls have less than one year to live, less than one month, and which souls have one to five years to live, right? Like, but the Lord knows. We don't know when it's last call. We do not. So for me, I look at this passage, I think, hey, if we're the church of the last days, we want to be one that's individually, we're just, we, we want to grow and we want to receive correction from the Lord and what he's allowed in our life. We want to grow and produce fruit. Be it transplanted to produce fruit, whatever, that's a good thing. Wouldn't you rather be transplanted to produce fruit than just be dying somewhere and just dying? Like, it's good, produce fruit. And to understand that Christ came to deliver people. He wants to deliver us. We're not meant to be in bondage to anything. We're meant to be set free and to walk in the fullness of the freedom that we have in Christ. Not that we can be ensnared again into bondage, but that we can walk in the liberty of Christ to advance the kingdom of Christ. They're in his true liberty. So it was their last call. We have today, and we want to be fruitful. So as the Lord would guide us in applying this, let us apply it. Let us be wise. Amen. Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight and its application from Luke 13.